I think there's always a place for academia as not just right research is one aspect, but to train the next generation. And that is the most valuable thing for any society. Right. And and that has to be relevant. So you can't kind of say, you know, we have this ivory tower, we train people there and then they go to the real world, they figure out everything else on the other side. Hi, Professor Anima. Welcome to the other side. It's a privilege talking to you today. Uh, we'll be covering a lot of topics, especially around the career, around your career and and the stories you have. Uh, so, so let me just uh, dive right in. Uh, I, I'm just curious from uh, from perspective of career as well. The question is uh, right now. I'm confused uh, where I want to be in the next ten years. Uh, seeing your career, I'm just curious. What was your thought process when you graduated, let's say, from IIT Madras or from uh, Cornell uh, when you did your PhD? Uh, what was the thought process and how did you uh, aim for your career? Yeah, yeah. first of all, uh, thank you for having me on this podcast. And uh, it's great to have a resource like this, right, for uh, students, not only in IIT Madras, but even more broadly. I think young uh, people these days have a lot of great resources online to think about their career, what they want to do, what they're passionate about. So uh, I think this podcast is a great step uh, in improving such uh, access to information. Thank you. And uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, I, I also like the name of the podcast, The Other Side. Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> it seems like this mysterious other side. And uh, given that I've been on both sides, I think yeah. it's a lifelong journey. I mean, even today, I keep asking myself, there are many paths to take, right? Whether it comes to tackling which research problems, right? What areas to work on. It's ongoing, right? I think that's the thing to remember that, uh, you know, it's great to have many opportunities and possibilities. And you always have to be constantly thinking about what is it that you would like to pursue and weigh the different options in a somewhat systematic way. And, and I think what, right, sometimes our human bias and our cognitive bias, what that prevents us from doing is thinking about opportunity cost, right? We tend to optimize only locally. It's so much harder to think of the longer term because who knows, there are just so many other uncertainties, right? So it seems much harder to strategize beyond the immediate, uh, right? impact or immediate rewards and that's where we tend to miss the bigger opportunities and and think of like the opportunity cost right because our time bandwidth energy all that's limited and if you're pursuing say one company or one project you may miss out on the others and i think what uh, my biggest advice would be to take some time, don't immediately jump on a decision. Like even if you've landed an amazing company or a university, right? Take the time to do the homework to ask, is that the best fit for you, right? Just don't go by what the world has portrayed it to be, right? We are not sheep, you know, we shouldn't just hurt towards the most popular ones. So, and maybe that's the right thing for you, but it's important to first do the homework, look at all the aspects, right? If you are, for instance, it's pursuing grad school versus 
being in a company, right? What is it that best suits your mindset? Do you work in a bigger team? Do you like working by yourself or is it a mix in a small team, right? Is that what that opportunity is offering uh, you? So, so all these aspects I think are important because we tend to focus so much on the reputation and the technical aspects, which, you know, as IITians, I'm sure uh, all of you are great at that. Right, but also focus on the interpersonal aspects, right? Will you be happy doing this? Are you passionate about this? You know, can you make this your lifelong mission? And sure, maybe Midway may still change that, but right now, are you excited by that? I think many people miss those questions because they're too afraid to ask them. So yeah. I encourage everyone to be much more authentic with themselves on what they want and pursue that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, before moving to the next question, I'm just curious. Uh, I, I was reading some article and there I saw that you had started the robotics club in IIT Madras. Uh, and and uh, I think that led to opening up the Center for Innovation and a lot of other things uh, inside Institute. Uh, I, I, I'm just curious about how was that experience uh, like in, in IIT Madras opening up something very significant? Oh, thank you. At that point, of course, right, we didn't uh, imagine all the impact it can have. I mean, again, it started with, uh, right, brainstorming among friends. Uh, and, uh, you know, we didn't have an avenue to pursue the hobbies, especially, right, uh, like tinker around, build like kind of robotic devices and just see how that plays, right? I mean, it's again, to me, like a way for people to come together and innovate. And I felt like right here, the cost wasn't even that high, right? Getting these kits, getting, making that available was easy enough. I mean, the programming, we've all had that uh, background and ability to do that. Uh, of course, at that time, there was no AI, <laughs> right? I wish there was because that would have been even more fun. You know, now at NVIDIA, we have these Jetson Nanos that are amazing for these kind of prototyping. Um, what was it like 16, 17 years ago? Uh, I felt like, you know, a premier institution for technical studies. How come it lacks a hobby club for robotics, right? This is such a key. No matter what your major is, this is so important to have that hands on experience, not just theory, uh, not just uh, the foundations. The foundations are important, but we need to apply them to the real world, and this is a great starting point. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, when you were telling about the previous question, you were telling about passion, being passionate about something and doing it. I think uh, that's where it also comes in, uh, bring your passion and your hobby and opening up uh, something new. Uh, so the question is, you have been a professor, you are a professor right now, and you have been a student, obviously. Uh, what What are the different things you realize after being a professor? Oh, it's such a hard job, <laughs> you know, like the best uh, teachers make it look so natural and easy, right? It's not. I mean, it's a lot of work to understand the needs of different students, right? Because every student has a different personality. They come from different backgrounds. Uh, they have different kinds of abilities. So how to celebrate the diversity of thought, diversity of backgrounds and get people together, right? create uh, network where everybody feels they belong there. It's a healthy, inclusive environment. 
I think that is just so hard to set that culture, to set that, right, connect with them at that level of passion, right, for learning. I know I truly believe every human being has that passion for learning and have that curiosity, but along the way, there may be so many other factors that have prevented them from connecting to their inner selves, right? So how to enable that in people and, you know, they have to kind of, right, take it from there, innovate on their own, set their own path. So enabling them, I think, is is not trivial for sure, but the best teachers make it look so natural and easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think being a, being a student, we don't realize that, obviously. Uh, but I think, uh, yeah, students should also take some uh, note from this and maybe empathize more with their profs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I can remember, like, for my high school uh, a math teacher, right, he had such a tremendous impact on me because he, you know, is a visionary. He uh, is able to kind of get to the core of, right, what makes math exciting and uh, how to kind of let people then further explore on their own, right? That's what the best teachers do, right? They yeah. don't do all the spoon feeding. They don't give all the ready-made material. I think that's, in fact, almost a disservice to the students, right? Yeah. So you want to enable people to explore on their own and actively learn. And, and in a way, the traditional curriculum prevents us from doing that, right? Because yeah, big yeah. there isn't a lot of uh, right ability to personally connect. I do think we should move to smaller classes. And now, of course, with COVID, a lot of the instruction is online. In one way, it can be very beneficial because different students can learn at their own pace. There's a lot of other online material, right? There can be personalized uh, interaction. Uh, but on the other hand, we can't be just spending our time on the screens. Right. We also need to have that in-person interaction. So hopefully we can uh, overcome this pandemic. And then when we come back, it'll be some kind of hybrid model rather than going back to the stone <laughs> ages when it comes to the medium of instruction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just wish I had the same kind of maths teachers in my life because maths has always been very very difficult for me <laughs> and that may be the reason I was in biotech. <laughs> uh, well I think that's the thing like it's so much of it is right in terms of how especially the basic concepts are introduced and also the attitude with which it's introduced right so my mom uh, is an engineer as well my grandma uh, you know, is very kind of good in puzzles, like even though she didn't have the formal math education. So in early childhood, like math was fun, right? Like they'd give me like every day, they'd give me puzzles to solve <laughs> and math problems to solve. And my grandfather was also a math teacher. So all through, it was never like something that you were afraid of. It was a fun thing. And, and so initially when I found it fun and I connected with it, right? After that, it became natural. And I think for a lot of that should come in very early childhood education, the way math is introduced and the attitudes with which, right, you don't think math as something as an enemy for you. Uh, I think we need to change that. But when you started, AI was not there, right? Like AI as, as it is hyped or it is kind of there. Uh, you, you were in electrical. Uh, I just want to know how did that shift happen? 
or like yeah, was I mean, there even a shift? You know, AI has been around for a long time, right? I mean, humanity has always wanted to create intelligence in an artificial being. Uh, but the, of course, the breakthroughs happened in this decade, and uh, that was the synergy of uh, uh, not just the deep learning algorithms, but the data and the compute infrastructure, you know, the GPUs, web scale data, all this coming together. So it's exciting times for me, but the foundations have been around for a long time. You know, in high school, when I uh, got introduced to probability and statistics, and, and to me, the world is then not just an order deterministic setup, right? But now you can reason about uncertainty, right? You can kind of manipulate that. And uh, to me, I just found that beautiful, uh, the ability to uh, deal with probabilities, right? And, and it's also very counterintuitive because humans can't judge uncertainty always very well. So, so that was fascinating for me as a foundation. And electrical engineering, I think, gave me a great foundation because signal processing is at the heart of machine learning, right? Many people don't uh, realize that because the terms sound very different, but you know, if you're thinking of like convolution and you know, Fourier transforms, all these are like now even underlying uh, current deep learning networks, right? So I think that intuition we get in terms of how to represent signals, how to process that, that foundation I think was great to have. And, uh, and during my grad school as well, I started first with statistical signal processing, right? Doing detection and estimation, like how to uh, do statistical inference uh, using a large set of sensors. So if I now have what we call internet of things, back then the term didn't exist, right? Lots of different sensors, whether in a home or in a field or in an industrial plant, how to take in all these different measurements, which are noisy and make decisions based on them, right? And so that's signal processing, but that's also machine learning because through that you're modeling and uh, being able to use the correlations across different sensors. My, my next two questions are kind of uh, linked. Uh, one is kind of an open question, your thoughts about the future of AI. Uh, but, but mostly I, I got this question from one of my friends. She, she was like, uh, yeah. And one, one question she asked was, uh, uh, there are a lot of good quality research papers already out in, in, in the field of machine learning and they keep coming out every year. Uh, and, and she feels that, uh, and I, I also feel that uh, there's a collective research depth that is accumulated. Uh, w w like, do you have any idea on how industry or academia can address this moving towards more distillation of the ideas? Yeah, I think in the last few years, uh, it's, already been democratized very well, right? And we've kind of had the basic building blocks because this machine learning revolution is an open revolution. You know, it's all in open source, right? There are notebooks available, it's accessible. There's fast.ai, for instance, that makes all these deep learning methods very accessible and you can also run the notebooks at scale. I mean, we don't have it universally, but we have it much more now than ever before, right? If you look at other areas and other innovations that happened before this, that was all closed, right? It was like kind of companies trying to kind of close off innovation, whereas even the biggest companies now are pushing for open source. You know, NVIDIA is pushing for open source, of course, Google, Microsoft. So it's just such a better and a different model from the earlier eras of innovation. 
And so that gives us a great foundation to then ask how we can right, enforce more of this reproducibility across the community. You know, the conferences now ask for the source code, you know, ask for quick reproducibility. Right? So there's now more accountability so that people are not just hyping up or <laughs> claiming things about the methods. And, you know, we're still in the infancy because there is just too many papers coming up right it's because now the barrier has lowered everybody just wants to <laughs> quickly churn out a paper and what i tell my students and collaborators is again think of that longer term and think of the opportunity cost right so if you're writing this paper which you fairly straightforward and right and maybe right already known in the field it's not that innovative you're missing the opportunity to do bigger things Right, so don't just think about adding this to your resume. And, and I know it's hard when you're young and you don't have a long resume, you just want to pad it, but resist that and then you can do bigger things. So that's what I would advise students to, you know, ask and, and ask it in a very scientific way, right? I mean, just because we are in the modern AI era doesn't mean, right, the, the uh, scientific hypothesis never gets old, right? You want to carefully test, you want to start from baselines, you do ablations, and you build up this as a science, right? That's true for any method you're developing, right? Don't just try to always hype it up. I mean, if it doesn't work well, be honest, right? I know writing negative results paper is hard, but we need more of that. And we need to be honest on what are the shortcomings and what are the benefits of a new method if that's what somebody is developing? Critically think for yourself, you know, where could this fail, right? Where would this not be great? Uh, and debate those before you apply them to your domain or your problem, right? So I think that will save a lot of uh, effort and time when it comes to, I think, human critical thinking will never get old. So critically judge whatever you're working on, whether in industry, whether in applied research or basic research, that should yeah. always be part of the thinking. Yep. And I think you are uh, in a position like you are working both in industry as well as in academia. Uh, I'm just curious, how, how, is, how, does, how did that happen? Is it that common uh, there, like working both in industry as well as being a prof and it's again right I'm, I'm really lucky to be in this era because now this is possible right earlier this would be unimaginable because right industries again were all closed source academia again kind of right expected people to be there full-time but then there was so much gap between industry and academia for that reason right like yes you could like learn all the foundations and theory right in the courses or in academia but then you try to apply them in real world problems so many times that's just not enough right because the theory makes those assumptions that are not valid and so students miss out that perspective and uh, and i think the field also loses because you're then uh, the progress is slower right and let's say in academia there are now new concepts being developed to try to move them to industry takes a long time uh, we want to reduce those gaps and uh, speed up progress. Um, yeah, now, for, especially in the U.S., there is more open-mindedness. U.S. and Canada should 
uh, say like Canada has been even more open in many ways of having these kind of dual positions. And that way, you know, we can bring in like the industrial scale, like, you know, the NVIDIA has, of course, the GPUs, but also the engineers building all the platforms and infrastructure and think about the foundational research problems, right? Not just in AI, but in sciences, you know, I co-founded AI for Science at Caltech, how to apply AI to problems in chemistry, you know, neuroscience, seismology, physics, right? Like, and these are interdisciplinary problems and it's uh, not straightforward, right? Because my machine learning PhD students don't want to be doing basic data <laughs> crunching, right? But then if you don't start there, you don't have the baselines, right? You don't even have the data set to begin with. So how to close those gaps and help, right? bring more of that uh, streamlined approach to having AI making this interdisciplinary impact. I think that's where industry academia collaborations can be very powerful. Yeah. Um, and and this, this brings to my follow-up question, why not full-time in industry for you? Like uh, what, what excites you about academia and maybe for anyone who is confused about industry or academia, how can they answer it for themselves? Especially. Yeah, I mean, I think academia can be really great for foundational, very long-term questions, right? Like, uh, you know, for instance, right now we have the current deep neural networks, but what about those that are, you know, closer to biological networks or human brains, right? That's a long-shot question. And whereas in uh, academia, I can ask those questions, right? So in fact, Doris Saul, who's a professor at Caltech and a neuroscientist, I'm collaborating with her and she has like monkeys in her lab where she does the neural recordings, right? Understand the feedback mechanisms in the brain for visual perception. And that inspired us in fact to create artificial neural networks with feedback that are very practical, that can right, handle all kinds of corruptions and noise in data without being trained on such examples, right? So there's the practical implication coming out of such collaborations, but you need like the domain experts in all these other sciences and social sciences that are in academia, right? That breadth of knowledge, it's hard to find in industry. Whereas in the industry side, I know NVIDIA is just so great in making GPUs the platform for computing and enabling right that scale. Uh, now we have supercomputer, you know, in NVIDIA, the Celine. Uh, we have uh, the engineers. We're building all kinds of platforms such as robot learning for simulations. So those are valuable, right? Because they help further, even sometimes jumpstart research in many areas. So we need the marriage of both of them. Got it. Got it. Uh, especially that uh, monkeys experiment sounds very exciting. <laughs> uh, yeah and uh, and that's uh I, I, so far right we don't see industry labs with that kind of breadth right and that may change in future but even then i think there's always a place for academia as not just right research is one aspect but to train the next generation and that is the most valuable thing for any society right and and that has to be relevant so you can't kind of say you know, we have this ivory tower, we train people there, and then they go to the real world, they figure out everything else on the other side, right? That's, that shouldn't be the approach. It should be much more integrated, I think. Yeah, and, and if, let's say, 
someone is confused right after graduation let's say from IIT Madras and they have graduated this year and they are confused about whether to join some company or go for higher studies uh what would be your advice for them yeah i think uh you know when i went through right i wanted to you know i did my uh, uh summer uh, internship at iisc in my junior year and uh, i loved research i loved uh, especially theoretical research at that stage and you know that's what i wanted to do right and so i was very kind of clear uh, i wanted to pursue research and back then there wasn't this ai revolution right so uh, going to industry meant uh, kind of the jobs that i wasn't passionate about at that stage so that was an easy decision now there are more opportunities and what many people do is if they're not sure of grad school is to postpone right sometimes they do a residency program and all these top companies offer these programs for a year so they get to kind of learn hands on and many times it's also research right because they are kind of partnering with research scientists uh, and so it's like an apprentice program uh, or doing internships even during their undergrad to uh, get like the uh, sense of you know both like if you're doing it in university or with researchers you get an idea of what research is about if you're doing it in a company you also get a sense of what company is about i think doing those helps people decide what's best for them um but yeah i think uh, uh, a grad school is um, a long commitment especially right phd so they want to be going in knowing that that's what they want to do right otherwise to take some time in industry and figure out i think that's a better uh, strategy uh, to uh, plan grad school yeah got it i got this question from one of my colleagues in in my company so my company is in uh, is again an ai company and uh, again i asked my colleagues there that i'm interviewing you if they have any questions and one of uh, them actually asked about uh, your uh, your advice or your opinion uh, your your advice to uh, people in ai working in ai especially women who are working in ai and i also saw some articles where uh, i i think you uh, sent some petition for admission in iits for uh, women so i think you are kind of passionate in there mm-hmm. as well uh, so yeah would like to hear your words on them yeah i think we still have to log- go a long way right when it comes to diversity and inclusion and you know both here in the us and in india worldwide uh, there is a long way to go to bring more women to technical careers to technical schools um and i think you know for me yes i had a great time in iit in many ways i made lifelong friends i had good mentors but there was also a lot of sexism right that's undeniable uh, many times i was the only woman in so many classes uh, and i was denied information that <laughs> everyone else got and and it was almost and there was like a lot of taunting like uh, for instance when i was topping the class you know like students in other majors who would taunt <laughs> uh, right uh, so, like my uh, colleagues that uh, they were right how could a girl top this like you know so as if like and i think that's what patriarchy does it's they you know a poison it poisons the men and it kind of encourages harassment of the women and uh, you know i faced a lot of such issues at iit and beyond right that's and every woman that i know has faced similar issues so we have to ask ourselves 
how to create a healthy and inclusive environment. And I think that's where the Me Too movement has brought up so much awareness. And before that, I couldn't imagine just speaking about this on a podcast, right? Because you're only yeah. supposed yeah. to talk about technical stuff, uh, you know, hide as much as possible the fact that you're a woman. Of course, I can't hide. You can look at my face. But I think that was this attitude, right? And uh, and all these kind of right, like kind of advice given to women, like, oh, don't dress up, don't do this, don't do that. Like, right, every step of the way, it's like, right, the confidence being broken bit by bit. And so what I see is a severe confidence gap between men and women when they graduate and beyond and in their careers. And so much of how we perceive success or capability is based on confidence. And that's where I think we need to do much better in terms of making sure we start with good, healthy environments. Um, and I think in IIT, uh, we need to create more awareness. I've heard that there are now some efforts underway uh, with the diversity cell. I also got to know the LGBT kind of activism has also now right, uh, created more awareness, right? Thankfully, like, people can openly uh, Right. Um, yeah, yeah. They are they are right. growing up gradually, uh, but they're yes. still very small. I mean, small. it's a long way, right? It's yeah. a long way, but I think we need to bring this all into the open, and we need allies. You know, we need men, right? Straight men to be part of all this conversation because, uh, you know, most of the people are with good intentions, and there are few bad apples. So we need to ensure that we bring them into the fold and that's what i think the current efforts are very much focused on not this being a segregated thing or oh, women have their special events right which is great i mean you know that's okay but uh, uh, it's really about bringing everyone together and increasing awareness of how right if i'm the only woman in a class what would how would my experience be so different from everyone else's how do i minimize that and then second of all, of course, we need more women in IITs, right? But I don't think like a reservation is just a really bad way to do that because it's not setting up um, women for anybody for that matter for success. I know it's a very politically sensitive issue. This is my personal opinion that instead, you know, we could do like uh, lots of intensive training uh, during high school or think about like, what is it that, that preventing their access, right? For instance, many times the parents just don't want to send them uh, to different cities. Uh, I know so many cases of women who are very capable of going through the exam, but they just, the parents weren't on board. So how do we change that? I mean, do we have like now even awareness programs, not just in the big cities, but smaller cities about these entrance exams and have like coaching, have uh, more of that ability to bring more women to have be capable of doing these exams right I think that there is a big gap there in terms of the resources that so many women don't get um, so I do yeah. believe those efforts can pay off a lot uh, but yeah we have a long way to go yeah yeah and uh, like you mentioned right like uh, I, being a man I can see that I'm not able to empathize uh, properly because those problems are ones that I'm not facing. Uh, but what advice would you give me at least to progress in this direction? 
Yeah, and, and, and that's what gives me so much hope, right? There are so many men like you asking this, what can I do, right? Uh, and that's already a great step, right? Because then the women around you and other right, minorities can know that you're an ally, right? So when a problem arises, that's when, right, uh, it would be great to step in. And, and then the other is general awareness, right? Like looking at... Uh, now that so many women are talking about their experiences in the open, right? Like asking, okay, those that are more open, how did that happen? Right. What were like studying, like what the factors were responsible. Of course, it's so easy to say a harasser, like kind of call him all kinds of names and <laughs> villainize him. Right. But what's the deeper question is how did the system enable that? Because it's what, uh, you know, how can somebody, gain power and have like this harassment continue sometime for decades, right? We hear these stories. And I'm sure there are so many women victims who would have complained early on, but no one did anything, right? And, and that's the thing. I think that's why we need the power of the community. Like, again, even like one person, right, cannot take on especially powerful harassers. But if there is more of that awareness, right, we can hope for that. And sometimes it's not even that kind of extreme harassment, right? There are everyday sexism and all that adds up to stress and toxicity. Um, you know, just like, you know, I think a lot of it is even paying attention. Like, you know, think of the women in your team. Think of how are the others treating them differently, right? Are they being interrupted? Are they being uh, asked to bring coffee? Or are they being asked to do things that they wouldn't ask a man? Or, uh, or there is all this information being shared in some evening events that they're not part of, right? So I think being aware that women are getting left out or not being part of the conversation or being having this, all these microaggressions it's a great starting point to be an ally, to start from those simple things. And then that already makes a huge difference uh, in yep. our lives. Yep. Thank, thanks for telling, uh, telling about so many things on this topic, especially. Uh, yep. uh, now moving uh, the topics a bit, uh, I want to ask you a few things on your career. Uh, you, have, you, you have become the youngest named chairperson at Caltech uh, while holding such top-level positions in companies like AWS, then and Nvidia, uh, now looking back at your, back at your career, uh, what do you think you did correctly? Like apart from uh, your skills in those core topics, what else did help you, you know, helped you in uh, growing to this position? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think there is still a long way to go for me, right? Always there is, uh, there is so much, uh, but I'm so thankful to be given these opportunities to, uh, you know, have teams and work with people, work with students that uh, are amazing. And I think what's uh, important is at the end of the day, it's the people, right, making these decisions. So connecting with them and being able to communicate your passion and uh, uh, really kind of, right, think about, uh, you know, how are the others all coming together as a group, right? Because if you're joining, whether it's university or industry, you're joining a team, you're becoming part of a family. So how do you fit in and how can you contribute, right? I think that mindset helps a lot because if, you, on the other hand, you're only demanding what can this company do for me and how do I grow and you're just too focused 
on yourself. And then you are also missing the bigger picture of how you can make impactful contributions. On the other hand, if you're now thinking that you're part of this team and uh, how do you help others and in turn they can help you, how do you find that allies? How do you find the uh, core group of colleagues? I think that's so critical uh, to, you know, not just grow for yourself, grow for the whole team, right? I think that's the healthy growth and that's the kind of growth that will be long lasting. Got it. Uh, now, now this is the last question that I have. Uh, let's say uh, you had uh, your chance to go back 10 years when uh, you were starting out from your PhD or uh, maybe 15 years when you're starting out from uh, 16 years, I think, when you're starting out from your undergraduate. Uh, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the primary one is not to be stressed out or too anxious, right? It's, it's hard because there's so much uncertainty and I feel like looking back, I wish I, I just relaxed more and uh, right, balanced better uh, because I was just like uh, many times too anxious to make things happen, right? Like, okay, I want to make this deadline. And we're kind of like driven into that starting from our undergraduate studies, right? We're doing night outs, we're catching deadlines. And I feel like that kind of rat race, and that's kind of the broader tech culture as well, right? Whether it's university or academia, you see others doing this and you're kind of, everybody's kind of driven to do that. And that's not the optimal thing, even for career success, right? And, and I feel like looking back, I could have, you know, have more balance and just not be stressed all the time. And now I encourage my students to do that. Like, you know, take time off, go on an adventure, uh, do develop a hobby. I think uh, that can also help uh, you have a better career growth as well. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Professor Anima, for joining me today. Uh, I think I was taking this interview after such a long time and uh, I was talking to you. I was slightly nervous. I was fumbling a lot, but it was an honor talking to you. And uh, thanks, uh, thanks no, again for coming. You're, you're amazing. And thank you for doing this. It's a great uh, public service. It uh, right, gets more people thinking about these issues. And, and I really appreciate you bringing about diversity and inclusion. This is close to my heart and I hope... Uh, everyone starts thinking more of this and we can bring about a huge societal change. Thank you.